Welcome, friends! I'm your host, Adrian, and yes, you found us Stamp Stories, a podcast about Canadian stamps and the stories behind them. Yeah! So if you love stamp collecting, Canadian history, or both, this is the show for you. Today is episode number 29, and today we'll be talking about a female painter who captured the landscape of World War I right after the war, and the Stamps Canada Post recently released to honor her. More in just a moment. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining us. Today, I'm so excited to share the story of Mary Ritter Hamilton, a Canadian painter who toiled away and risked her health to create paintings that would depict the battlefields and aftermath of World War I. But before we delve into the stamps Canada Post released to honor her, let's learn her story. Mary Ritter Hamilton was born in Teeswater, Ontario in 1867, although some records suggest she was born in 1873, but hey, we'll go with 1867. What is known is in her early years, her family moved to Clearwater, Manitoba, and in her later teens, she moved to Emerson, Manitoba, which is on the Canadian-American border because her brother was working there. She also showed in her early life a joy of art and would work as an apprentice as a milliner, which is a person who designs and makes hats. In 1889, she married Charles W. Hamilton, and they would move to Port Arthur, which we now know as Thunder Bay. Charles would become a leading merchant, running one of the town's general stores, and as the wife of a successful businessman, she pursued her art passion and self-taught herself to paint China from magazines. It was a very popular hobby at the time. Because China, because China painting was socially acceptable, because it allowed a woman to create artistic objects for the home. Mary and Charles, shortly after their marriage, would have a stillborn child, and in 1893, only four years of marriage, her husband unfortunately passed away. Mary was now widowed at a young age of 26 and far from family. With his death, she inherited a certain amount of financial freedom from selling their business, but Mary decided to head to Winnipeg where she had family members, and it's also where she officially began her art career. To make a living, Mary opened up a China painting school, which was relatively successful, and eventually she moved on to painting in watercolors and oils. Along with this money and the small wealth she had inherited from her husband's estate, she began to take professional training in painting seriously and continued to pursue her artistic passions. Her passion to become an artist led her to travel to Toronto in 1894 to study with E. Wiley Greer, a well-known portrait painter, and with George Agnew Reed and his wife, Mary Heister Reed. In 1901, she had the opportunity to travel to Europe and to study there. She went with two other young women from Winnipeg, one who was to study the violin and her cousin who was a chaperone. The other benefit, as some historians have suggested, is that it gave her a chance to be exposed to the art museums and, of course, study art from the greats in Europe. Eventually, Mary would make it to Berlin, and for two years there, she studied with Franz Scarbina, an Italian landscape artist. When her other young women travel companions came back to Winnipeg in 1903, Mary Hamilton would go on to Paris, where she would continue her art studies, including under several well-known artists, including Jacques-Emile Blanche and Paul-Jean Gervais. She also studied at the Académie Viti in Paris. She would also spend time in Italy, the Netherlands, and Spain learning her craft. Unfortunately, 
she had to return to Winnipeg in 1906 because of her mother's failing health. She stayed in Winnipeg for a year, where, and according to the record, she had a large class of pupils who came to learn from her. At the same time, she took the opportunity to have exhibitions of her work in Winnipeg and Toronto. By 1909, her work began to get recognition, and her painting Les Pauvres was displayed at the Salon, which meant acceptance by the French Academy. She returned to Winnipeg in 1911 due to her mother's failing health again, but this time her mother would not recover. However, Mary stayed in Canada afterwards, and she put together a show of 150 works, which were seen in galleries in Toronto at the end of that year, and in Ottawa, Montreal, Winnipeg, and Calgary in 1912. The exhibitions were highly successful according to reports at the time. Dana Gibson, the American artist, viewed the paintings in Ottawa and said they were, quote, positively marvelous and, quote, to the credit of an artist whose work is bound to become world famous, end quote. The Montreal Star at the time said that, quote, the only criticism which might apply is that her work is just a little advanced of the time, and yet this is not to blame. It may be almost called encouragement, end quote. While in Winnipeg for this go-around, she intended to produce a Canadian landscape series, which she could exhibit in Paris. She went to Alberta, where she painted scenes of mountains and lakes and portraits of local Indians, which, after successful exhibitions in Calgary and Winnipeg, were then sent off to France. She then made her way to Victoria, British Columbia, where she would unexpectedly stay for five years as a result of the war in Europe, which obviously prevented her from returning back to her base, especially in Paris. So while in Victoria, BC, she became involved in the war effort and volunteered for a number of charitable operations. She also taught painting and also took whatever portrait commissions came along, including to some of the lieutenant governors of British Columbia. However, the sales of her private works were never enough to allow her financial security, and as she said following an exhibition in Vancouver, quote, Artists, like other people, must live, and yet it is almost impossible to live in Canada by art alone. Not only is it a matter of money, but of appreciation, end quote. On top of this, she was blocked by her gender. As, for example, in 1916, Lord Beaverbrook, also known as Max Aitken, a Canadian newspaper mogul, established the Canadian War Memorial Fund. It was Canada's first war art program, and it was established with the idea of using artists to depict Canada at war through various mediums, including art. Mary Ritter Hamilton applied to be a documentary artist and go paint the scenes during the war, but she was ultimately turned down. The artists that were appointed were, of course, all men. Nonetheless, as fate would have it, one of the people she would get to know in Victoria at the time was a man named J.A. Patton, who had been a soldier in the war and had returned himself as an amputee. Patton was involved in founding an organization called the Amputation Club of British Columbia, which today we know as the War Amps. At this time, it was a veteran support organization with the idea that it would provide assistance to soldiers returning, particularly those that had been amputees as a result of the war. They provided some education, some opportunity to retrain these men, also some social support for them and the camaraderie with others learning to cope with a life now as a wounded and amputee soldier. The club was also producing a magazine called The Gold Stripe, and in 1919, Mary Ritter Hamilton got a partial commission, which got her back to France and provided her with the opportunity to create works of art to document the scenes these men had seen and to show Canadians back home what had been experienced in the way 
by their brave men who had fought in the war. And because of this, it was crucial for Mary to get there right away before any construction had started, so she left immediately. Her work concentrated on the main sites that Canadians would know, Passchendaele, Vimy, the Somme, places that had been in the news back in Canada. At first, she lived with the remaining military contingent in Arras, but then they departed, and she was on her own with the Chinese workers hired to clear the battlefields as her only companions. These men had the appalling task of burying the dead, removing unexploded shells, clearing roads and waterways, and restoring some sort of order to the land before it could return to normal. As she is quoted as later saying, quote, I made up my mind that where our men went under so much dreadful conditions, I could go, and I am very proud to have been able, even in a small way, to commemorate the deeds of my countrymen, and especially if possible to lend a helping hand to the poor fellows like those of the Amputations Club who will be lifelong sufferers from this war. It is fortunate that I arrived before it was too late to get a real impression." End quote. Let's recall too at this time, she wasn't a young girl. She was in her early 50s, the conditions were brutal for her. She lived in a tin hut at first and then in makeshift shelters. The food was hard to come by and the weather was hostile. She was left emotionally and physically drained. Mary also had to paint with whatever materials came to hand. And somehow, between 1919 and 1922, she painted more than 300 images in the uncomfortable and sometimes dangerous conditions of the former Western Front. Also, when you have a chance to look at her works, you notice her work is not cold or dark. You get a sense from her paintings. There is sort of optimism or rebirth, even with crosses and flowers placed in an area of destruction. Her work would be exhibited both in Vancouver and Victoria in 1920, as well as being published in The Gold Stripe. While they were well-received in Canada, her biggest successes were in France and Britain. She had exhibitions at the Palais Garnier in Paris in 1922 and in Amiens, and then in London at Surrey House. At the Somme Memorial Exhibit, she was awarded the Purple Ribbon of Les Palmes Académiques, the Order of Public Instruction. It's the second highest honor in France below the Légion d'Honneur. She was the first Canadian to ever receive it. And unfortunately, nobody knew much about this in Canada because she just wasn't famous. Her battlefield art went on to win more awards, including the gold medal at the International Decorative Arts Exhibition of 1925. She stayed on in Europe after completing her work, but again, she had financial difficulties. And although she had offers from some to purchase her battlefield pictures in Europe, she did not sell them. She also became ill and partially blind due to the rough conditions she endured on the battlefield, and she was forced to take up the decorating of dress accessories in order to obtain enough money to return home. Near the end of 1925, she packaged up 227 of her works when she finally managed to pay for passage and get home. She had envisioned a national tour of her paintings, but it never happened. She simply couldn't get the financial support for it. Some suggest at this time people wanted to move on from the war and the subject was just not in vogue. In the end, she tried to give the works to the National Gallery, but they weren't accepted either. However, through her connections, she made contact with Arthur Doughty, the head of the Dominion Archives at the time, which we now know as Library and Archives Canada. And by 1926, all was arranged and she gave the works to Canada for no charge. It held a special place for her that these works would be part of the archives, as she would remark in later letters, quote, in making a formal deed of gift to the Public Archives of Canada of my collection of battlefield pictures, may I give expression first to my feelings of gratitude and happiness. It is a great honor and privilege to know that the work done amid the inexpressible desolation of no man's land has been considered worthy of a place among the memorials of our Canadian men. 
the survivors and the fallen. I do not think I could relive that time, and I know that anything of worth or anything of beauty which may be found in the pictures themselves reflects only dimly the visions which came then, the visions which came from the spirit of the men themselves, end quote. Now that the works had a home in Canada, she was also home back in Winnipeg. She set up an art teaching operation again. This time it wasn't very successful, however, so she moved to Vancouver. She again opened a teaching studio there, and it was a bit more successful. The period after the donation, however, was really marked by illness and financial instability. And by 1948, her health failing to such an extent, she would give up her studio. She would die in Vancouver a couple of years later in 1954 at the age of 81 and be buried next to her husband, Charles, in Thunder Bay. Commentators have noted that one of the reasons Mary Ritter Hamilton was not known outside of some specific circles is that most of her art is not publicly out there. For example, at the War Museum or at the National Gallery. If you think about it, the majority of her work is in an archival documentary place. I think that is why it's so exciting she is now getting some recognition by being featured on Canadian stamps. Speaking of which, now let's look at the stamp Canada Post released to celebrate the work of Mary Ritter Hamilton. The stamp was released this year on October 28th, 2020. The stamp is of a painting called Trenches on the Sum. It was painted in 1919 and is part of the Library and Archives Canada collection Mary had donated, which we just spoke about. Now let's look a little bit closer at this uh, painting. The painting exhibits a trademark of many of her war paintings where Mary often puts the viewer inside a trench. What else do we see? Well, looking at the painting, we see the white chalk of the trench walls of the Somme, this is not snow, as I had first assumed, but Somme was a terrain primarily made of chalk, and because of this actuality, a sector of the British trenches was nicknamed White City. Along with these white chalk walls of the trench, instead of the blood red of the battlefield, we see wild poppies growing. It has a major significance for Canadians, the poppy that is, and actually for many in the Commonwealth. Today, the poppy is the official symbol of remembrance, hope, and to never forget. Even though the poppy was only adopted as such in 1921, it was already well known unofficially at the time by the famous poem by John McRae, which we've covered in another episode of this podcast, and I hope you'll check out. Now let's look at how you can buy the stamp. They're really available in a couple of offerings from Canada Post. The stamp is available in a booklet of 10 permanent domestic rate stamps and is the work of Montreal-based graphic designer Réjean Mayette. And there's 130,000 booklets available and it was printed by the Canadian Banknote Company. The stamp is also available as an official first day cover from Canada Post, 7,000 of which were printed. And its cancellation is out of Teeswater, Ontario, which was Mary's birthplace. The pictorial cancel features a silhouette of a painting perched on an easel. This stamp truly is a piece of art and a great remembrance for all those who sacrificed their lives in the Great War. More importantly, it's wonderful that another generation gets to learn about Mary Ritter Hamilton and the great sacrifices she made to document the Great War where a generation perished. So that's it for the 29th episode. 
Thank you so much for spending your time with me. And don't forget to make sure to subscribe to this show in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. I also appreciate everyone that is sharing this podcast with their fellow collectors. The interest in this podcast energizes me to continue. Also, don't forget, if you're looking for more info about the stamps in the show, make sure to check us out at stampstories.ca on our website. You'll also be able to see the stamps mentioned in this episode and other cool historical material I found during my research. You can also check that out by clicking on the notes tab on the website or by visiting the link we've added to the description of the podcast episode. Finally, if you're on Instagram or Twitter, follow us at our handle stampstoryca, all one word. It's the best place besides our website to get updates about this podcast. Once again, thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon for our next episode. Happy collecting. Happy collecting.